So the most common impacts are the most common diseases that we have, and that includes heart disease and cancer and diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, autoimmune disorder, disorders, um, and, and chronic pain. And um, so what I, what I like to kind of explain to my patients is that the, the modern diet is really sort of an all-you-can-eat buffet of chronic diseases, and which precise chronic disease you're going to get um, depends in some part on your on your particular genetics and your particular take on the you know, what you what you draw from the buffet. <laughs> so um, so, but all of those things, fortunately, can be reversed in you know to some extent or completely if you move away from that all you can eat buffet of disease and start going to the deep nutrition concepts and eating the human diet, which is composed of four elements. What is going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm condensing a book down its core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author onto the show to have a conversation with them about the golden nuggets. And I'm here every single week just saving you a little bit of time. Thank you so much to everybody who has rated and reviewed the show so far. If you're listening right now and you haven't done it, why aren't you rating it? Why aren't you reviewing it? Do you not like free stuff? Do you not want a chance to win an iPad or an iMac or if you're not a Mac person, I don't know, I'll throw some Google stuff in there. I don't know. The new Google earphones. Who knows? In any case, get your rating in, get your review in, and um, I just want to see them uh, keep rising because I know there's a ton of you listening. Our listenership is going up every single week, so it's just uh, nice to see some ratings and reviews come in there. Again, this quarter, I've said it so many times already, but i got to remind you, we're giving away the MacBook Air this quarter, and I'll be giving that away closer to around Christmas time, and uh, time's a ticking, so get your ratings in, get your reviews in. If you already have done that, then you're already entered into the draw this quarter and every other quarter thereafter. So this week, we're doing another book that's a little bit different from a business book, and I know a lot of people have come out of the woodwork, and they've told me, hey, man, like, what are you doing? We used to start off with just business books, and now you're kind of breaking into diet books and health books? Like, are you an expert in health and wellness? And the answer to that is obviously no, I'm not. I'm like, well, I'm very interested in it. I consider myself a very healthy person. I like to stay informed about it. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to build my expertise as a health and wellness person. What I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to bring good content to you that's going to educate you, that's going to make your life better. You might not have time to read, you know, for example, the book that we're talking about today. It's like 500 pages. You might not have time to read that. So if you don't have time to read that, I want to bring the information to you so that at least, at least you're getting the golden nuggets from each of these books. Because God knows we're busy enough, right? Kids, work, hobbies, whatever, just time to relax. You don't have time. So if you can pop me in your ears once a week and listen to a podcast and listen to all the golden nuggets from a book, whether it's a business book, a health and wellness book, a motivational book, self-help book, whatever, it's making you a little bit better. So when people ask, why are you doing health and wellness books? Because it's important for you to understand this information. That's why. So that's why I do it. So in any case, this week what we're doing is we're doing another health book called Deep Nutrition. And this book was given to me by one of my very close friends. I'm actually going to be going out to Puerto Vallarta for his wedding in two weeks. And uh, very, very excited for that. Been uh, trimming up, making sure I'm in top shape for that one. But anyways, he told me about this book, Deep Nutrition. And he the words he used to describe it was it's a game changer and that it truly changed his life. And we hear that all the time from people. 
right? They say, oh, this changed my life. And it's, you know, hyperbole, but he really means it. And this guy, he spends a lot of time reading and researching different aspects of health and wellness. And he said, you got to pick up this book. You have to read it. And I'm glad I did. There's a lot of really good information from this that I do talk about with the author. And again, the book, sorry, I don't think I've even introduced it yet. Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food. And this book's by Dr. Catherine Shanahan or Kate Shanahan. Um, Dr. Kate is what she likes to go by. So uh, the book, very long. It's a very long book, very long read, but there's a ton of great golden nuggets from it that I want to share with you. And that's why I'm bringing this episode to you because I know that... You know, your diet might not be great. And our diets, they fall off all the time. And unfortunately, you know, you can try to improve your results in business or what have you. But if you don't have your health, man, you don't have a whole heck of a lot. So give it a listen, take some notes, and really commit a lot of this knowledge to memory because it's going to be very important. It's going to influence the kind of stuff that you eat. And when you eat differently, you will feel differently. And when you feel differently, you will also get different results. And in my opinion, you'll get better results. So in any case, without further ado, this is... Dr. Kate Shanahan's book, Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food. I'll catch you back here at the end of the interview. Enjoy. Dr. Kate, how you doing today? Hi, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for bringing me on your show. Thanks for coming on the show. So like we always do in Cut the Crap podcast fashion, we get the author onto the show. We ask them a number of questions about the book and we really dig deeper into it. But before we do, we have to learn a little bit about yourself and what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, that's a long story, but, um, you know, I kind of was forced to do it almost because I had a, um, a revolution in my way of thinking about health and practicing medicine. So I'm a family medicine physician. And at the time of this revolution, I was practicing in Hawaii and I had become, uh, I had gone to medical school with the idea that I'd be able to get to the bottom of illness. Um, and I had become, uh, I don't know if I want to say jaded, but I kind of realized that that does not, that's not what doctors learn in medical school. We learn to categorize illnesses really nicely and to um, diagnose them and to find prescriptions to manage them and sometimes alleviate them. But, um, you know, I kind of gave up on the idea of getting to the root cause of things, the common things like hypertension or fatigue, um, weight problems, you know, I didn't really even see them as something that had a root cause actually. And um, it wasn't until I got really sick myself where I couldn't walk for a year. And I, um, I uh, was formerly an athlete actually. I'd gone to college on a um, cross country and track scholarship. I had been invited to the Olympic trials in Germany in the 1980s. And I um, had a lot of uh, time in my day that I was no longer using to exercise because I couldn't. And, and of course I was like desperate for a solution. And mm. my husband brought back a book uh, by a guy named Andrew Weil was one of the leaders okay. of the alternative health movement. Um, and the book was spontaneous healing. And, and in that book, it um, mentioned something called essential fatty acids, which like omega-3 basically and omega-6, mm -hmm. which we all know about now, but this was a long, long time ago and I hadn't learned about it in medical school. And uh, before medical school, I had been a biochemist and fatty acids uh, kind of rekindled my uh, the, my inner biochemist because that is a biochemical term. And um, and I felt like, what the heck is this? That I thought all fats were bad and, you know, fats like that act like a vitamin and what? And so I, I realized there was a lot more to nutrition. Um, 
potentially than, uh, or at least that was one more thing that, that was seemed pretty important. And so uh, to get to the bottom of this idea about fats, I actually, even though I couldn't walk, I, and I was on the island of Kauai, we didn't have any kind of access to, to books, uh, like biochemistry books. Um, Amazon it didn't ship to Hawaii at the time, so I actually flew to the medical bookstore in Oahu and uh, you know, took a wheelchair around the wheel airport and everything. It took forever and I bought a bunch of biochemistry books and brought them back and read them cover to cover and realized that, yeah, there was quite a lot more to the science of nutrition than what I had learned in medical school. And what I had learned was actually 100% opposite wrong. Like, you know, I had learned fat is bad for you, salt causes hypertension, cholesterol clogs your arteries. None of that was true. And, um, and the, the, the thing that helped me to understand uh, that it was not true was actually biochemistry. So it wasn't like what most of nutrition science is now. And what, you know, a lot of what I had learned, when, when doctors learn um, nutrition, we learn two things. We learn biochemistry, like we memorize things like the Krebs cycle and pathways like that. And then we learn statistics. And that's it, not really, um, it's not really an, um, give you what anything useful actually in there, you know, because the, the Krebs cycle um, on its face doesn't appear to have any information that will help a doctor tell his patient, you know, why they have acne or why they're tired or, you know, how to lose weight. And neither do the statistics actually, because they keep changing as I think most people have noticed, right? Eggs are bad, eggs are good, butter's bad, margarine was good. Um, keeps flip-flopping back and forth. Should you be a vegan? Should you have a plant-based diet? Um, should you eat protein powder? You know, it's just like, oh gosh, it's all over the place. And so, um, so it, it turns out though that biochemistry, um, has a lot of ability to help settle these things, settle these questions once and for all. And, uh, but that's not all there. You need something else. And the other science that you need is, uh, a record of what people used to do. Um, be, what, before all these chronic diseases and before the dietitians uh, started telling people that saturated fat was bad and before um, processed food makers also started having all the influence that they currently do. And that record is found in the form of uh, cookbooks, you know, you know, traditional cooking. So, um, so those two bodies of science are kind of um, invaluable and uh, I mean are definitely invaluable and they kind of form the foundation a little bit of the origin of the, the ideas um, around deep nutrition and in the book deep nutrition and what we call the human diet which is the diet that everybody everywhere used to follow before you know industrial era where everything has changed and generally for the worse it's interesting you so as far as your your level of experience essentially has gone into this book. And again, this book is very detailed. So are you saying that essentially through all of your studies, all of your research, deep nutrition is the culmination of a lot of that research? Yes. In terms of, you know, kind of settling this question of what do people need to eat? And, and, um, and uh, because that is just such a area of, of controversy still and people are acting like we don't have the an the answer or we don't have the ability to settle it and we still need more information and more research you know that's mm -hmm. typically what you hear but but actually we don't we just need more of a memory <laughs> we need to remember what we used to do and then the biochemistry helps explain why that works mm, i love it we're going to get into a little bit more about that later on but first I want to start talking about the intelligent gene because many of us think that diet and, and health, it's 
we think about it purely in terms of the impact on our own on our own bodies but as you explain in the book the impact it goes a lot deeper than that and you delve into the study of epigenetics which is essentially the study of how I might screw this up how existing genes can be turned on or off by things like our diet um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and how that impacts us yeah so epigenetics is um, one uh, kind of poetic way to think about it is the science that describes how the DNA molecule comes to life because um, you know it's a it's a basically it's a dead molecule but um, there's all kinds of stuff going on in a cell that activates it and makes it uh, functional. And um, so genes being turned on and off is one extremely essential aspect of that based on our nutrition, based on uh, what time of day it is, based on our level of stress, how much exercise we do, what we're thinking, um, and so many other, um, what the air that we breathe is like and, and so on. So um, pretty much everything that we eat or drink or think or do has an impact on some level on how our DNA is going to function, how which genes are going to be turned on or off and expressed into proteins. And that's, of course, only just part of it, too, right? Because if you just because you make um, just because you turn on a gene doesn't mean that the enzyme or whatever is going to actually be functional at any given time. So it's, but that's one key aspect of it. And the reason that we bring it up has to do with the the, uh, concept of your genes actually expect to receive the nutritional uh, composition um, during your lifetime that your parents received and their parents and so on and so on and so on all the way back for, you know, many generations since we've been human. Um, and, and that expectation the is explained through the science of epigenetics. And so basically it means when our genes don't get the blend of nutrients that they are expecting, they're going to get sick, they're going to malfunction, and then you're going to be sick. Now that terrifies me because if you look at what people are eating today, like just be observant and, when you go to the grocery store next time, look at what people are loading up in their carts. Maybe look at what you're loading up in your cart, for crying out loud, and see the kind of food that you're putting in your body, the, the liquids you're putting in the body. Look at some of the labels, like things that people think they're eating that are, 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 are healthful choices, like muffins, for example. And you look at the, the um, ingredients on there, and you see there's 24 grams of sugar in each muffin. And you, know, you, you look at everything, the pop they put in their, um, the, the soda they put in their, their carts, the carbs they put in their carts. The amount of food and the types of food we're eating today leads me to believe that our genes are, are pretty screwed up and that they're not getting what they need. What are the impacts of that? And I think it's a pretty obvious answer to that, but maybe it sounds better coming from you. But what are the impacts of us not having a diet that our genes require? So the most common impacts are the most common diseases that we have, and that includes heart disease and cancer and diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, autoimmune disorder, disorders, um, and, and chronic pain. And um, so what I, what I like to kind of explain to my patients is that the, the modern diet is really sort of an all-you-can-eat buffet of chronic diseases, and which precise chronic disease you're going to get um, depends in some part on your on your particular genetics and your particular take on the, you know, what you, what you draw from the buffet. (laughs) So, um, so, but all of those things fortunately can be reversed in, you know, to some extent or completely, if you move away from that, all you can eat buffet of disease and start going to the deep nutrition concepts and eating the human diet, which, um, maybe we'll get to that, but, um, 
it's composed of uh, you know four four elements. But um, but before we get to that, I, I just wanted to um, bring up the uh, that was one thing I wanted to bring up about the uh, the idea of um, of be, that that is kind of obvious. But um, right, I mean, I, th- I don't think it's a surprise to anyone. Sure. <laughs> just said but what may be surprising um is that you're probably carrying some genetic mutations or some malfunctioning genes that may not be correctable because of what your parents ate and what your grandparents ate now so that's where we get to the um to like the limits of what can a good diet help you with right it's not a complete reversal that would be wonderful um, I would love to say that, you know, well, uh, you know, it'll make you taller, it'll make your bones thicker, it'll give you more muscle mass than what you're genetically, you know, now have been genetically programmed. Um, it'll, uh, it, you know, it'll completely alleviate dementia. You know, I mean, that's not really possible. But but the thing is that, you know, the, the thing that's so important about this is that if you're planning on having a child, if you're in that age group, um, what you eat is going to powerfully determine the health capacity of your children. And so we have children now who are born in this typical American diet who are predisposed to low bone density, low muscle mass, short stature, and obesity and diabetes because their parents didn't get enough protein. They got the wrong kinds of fats. They got um, you know too much carbohydrate and so on. And that's the what you call – and again, this is what I'm pulling from golden nugget number two here. But um, it's the impact – of what we eat today that it impacts our children and the the very top of this before we actually came on here and I was telling you about how the book was introduced to me uh, my friend that actually brought this to me um, he uh, just had a little girl and to him he always says I wish I read this book beforehand now he always ate very clean but now he's just becoming more methodical about it and you talk about this concept called the sibling strategy can you maybe just talk a little bit more about that for us yeah, so um, one of the things that inspired me even to write the book is a book by Weston Price called, um, who was a dentist that was practicing in the 1920s and 30s. And he noticed that um, when people went away from their traditional diets to modern diets, there was a jaw structure change that um, you could even see between siblings. And so that if the um, mom, for example, had moved to uh, away from her village to the city, was getting you know, more white flour and uh, minimally, or, I mean, processed food and not you know healthy food at that time, then the subsequent children would look physically different. Their their jaws would narrow, their air passages would narrow, and so on and so forth. So um, that that it, it was related to the fact that the relatively speaking, the first baby generally, so this is all on averages, right? So it's not like, uh, there are going to be exceptions to this, of course, but on average, all else being equal, um, if mom doesn't give herself enough nutrition between babies or enough time um, between babies, the first baby, the placenta depletes the body of, of minerals, of, um, you know, like calcium for bones and teeth and of essential fats like omega-3 for brain building and normal eye development, 
um, of vitamins like vitamin A for normal facial development and, you know, all, all, and so on and so on. Um, and so you see that there's a uh, change between siblings. And I see this a lot in children who are born close together and uh, women in America here, uh, because, you know, a lot of women who delay childbearing until like their late twenties or thirties or even early forties, they want to have their children like really close and they, they kind of do it a little too quickly in some cases so that um, you can actually see that the, the second child has a different, like there's their, their facial structure is different and it goes towards this pattern of um, narrowing of everything and smalling of, of um, the bones. They may, they may actually be the same height, but the bones are might, might be skinnier or less well-developed, you know, depending on exactly what, uh, what happened. And so the strategy here is, uh, well, so let's say you had your first baby and you've done, you've read the book. Um, well, now for your second baby, make sure that you eat well and give yourself enough time, you know, so the minimum, minimum ever in a traditional culture seems like it was two years between births. Um, but maybe a smarter would be like three or four years. And a lot of women are worried about that. They're like, well, my biological clock is ticking, but a good diet actually reverses the biological clock. You know, there's all these different calculators you can see about like your brain age and your heart age and your gene age too. your biological clock age is being you know, set back by by making healthy changes. Hmm. It's interesting. When you were describing this in the book, you were talking about uh, use the example of the Dillon brothers, Matt and Kevin Dillon, where they were. Um, who was it? Uh, Kevin Dillon was born 18 months after Matt and you had two pictures of them lined up and you can see the definition of their jaws change. You know, you're saying, why has one been cast in more, you know, heartthrob roles than the other? And it's funny, but Kevin Dillon has actually made a career of himself as the young, <laughs> successful brother. That's exactly right. I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean here, but it's true. That's kind of how he's been cast. And so I, I laughed at it because I grew up watching Entourage and I just laughed because that's his character. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the older brother or the, the younger brother, not as good looking. But um, this whole idea of the sibling strategy was new to me and uh, new to a lot of people that I've talked to about this. And it really makes you think about what you put in your body. Um, you might be a little bit selfish about it, where it's just, hey, whatever I put in my body, you know, I hear this all the time, whatever, I'm going to die happy, you know, give me that McDonald's. Well, if you're going to have a child, maybe think differently about that now, because what you put in your body, it's not only impacting you, but it's impacting your children and their genes. And that to me was um, a huge revelation, completely massive. So where did you come up with this? Was this just through through your your studies or where did you first hear about this sibling strategy or where did you first find this research? So, yeah, so in Weston Price's book that he published um, in the 1930s um, called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, it's kind of like it was used as meant to be used as a textbook for practitioners, Mm. uh, dentists and doctors. Um, But um, that was where I first saw it. And then like the other piece of the puzzle actually came from a John Cleese BBC special called The Human Face that featured a a maxillofacial surgeon in uh, Southern California named um, Stephen Marquat, who came up with a a mathematical formula for the what he calls the perfect face Mm. and um so this is where we get into some areas of contention and controversy because it's like now we're starting to like say that there's like an ideal 
right? And and so, um, you know, people don't like hearing that. They don't like hearing that there's an ideal. Um, but this is actually an architectural thing. It's a, it's a natural world um, phenomena that he based it off of called the golden mean or the Fibonacci or the phi ratio, mm. P-H-I. It's a mathematical constant that is actually like pi. Um, it just it, it emerges from the structure of the universe. And it, it turns out that um, when uh, that most natural forms um, have this geometry when they are allowed to develop um, undisturbed. So like crystals are a good example. Um, well, the most famous example is the Nautilus shell um, that has like a perfect um, spiral. Um, and um, the reason that the mathematicians and the, um, the people who use this uh, ratio um, are also like architects and interior designers and designer people who build stuff. Um, the reason they, they use this is because it imparts strength. It, it gives um, functional functionality to form. It enables something called recursive growth, which is something you don't think about, but it's like how does our hand, for example, or our teeth or our nose maintain its shape as it grows? It actually has nothing to do with DNA. Um, it's a It's like a crystallization of the human being right like if you've ever watched crystals grow on um videos like they they kind of happen all by themselves there's no dna guiding that like if you ever if you ever seen like a time lapse mm -hmm. video a crystal crystallization happening in a petri dish or somewhere um it just grows and it keeps its same structural like it keeps certain um, angles are always the same and um, it, it looks like itself, just more of it. Right. Well, same with people and, and, you know, anything that grows, trees, um, uh, fruits, pine cones, you see these like patterns developing and, and it's actually exactly the same with people. And so, so, it, but it, it is something that um, we respond to emotionally when we see somebody who has this um, geometry in their face. We love looking at it. It gives us like a pleasure. It actually releases dopamine and serotonin into our brain to just look at a beautiful thing, not just not just a person, but especially a person, because that is so important to our biology that we identify people who are um, who are well fed, basically, to breed with. So we've been talking a little bit about, well, we've been touching on the idea of the human diet and the four pillars of world cuisine. And I want to dig into that now because to me, that's where I really want to spend a lot of time because that for me was a lot of new information that, you know, I haven't really dug too deep in. Um, and so maybe what I can get from you first is maybe what we can do is we can start looking at the human diet, the four pillars of, of world cuisine and, um, um, from there, we'll also start talking about some of the foods that we have in our diets that maybe we shouldn't have in our diets that a lot of us maybe should be kicking out. So maybe introduce us to the human diet and uh, dig a little bit deeper into that. Sure. So the human diet is composed of these four pillars of world cuisine. And we they come from looking at traditional uh, foods, traditional cookbooks, and uh, actually watching travel shows, which is a lot of fun, you know, travel food shows, where people who were preparing the meals weren't really necessarily, you know, working in a high-end restaurant. They were just like, 
um, like our favorite show actually was um, Anthony Bourdain um, has a TV show called No Reservations. And it was out in like, I think the 90s and early 2000s. And he would just travel to different countries and go to like a high end restaurant, go to a hole in the wall restaurant. And then he always went to a family where there was a tab like usually ended on like the family meal. And usually the person cooking was some like some mother or aunt or grandmother who would just loved cooking. And it that was where like Anthony Bourdain really lit up because the love that went into those dishes and the the diversity of the dishes and just the care where they got the best freshest fish or the most um, beautiful colored vegetables and just labored and labored to make the sauces and stuff. And so that kind of thing, plus the cookbooks, uh, we, my husband and I had this idea that, you know, there definitely is um, common elements that we were seeing over and over and over again. And we wanted to break it down into its simplest, um, simplest components. And we found that there was a, uh, there were four categories of food, not four foods, but categories of food um, that every, that we saw over and over again, everyone has it, whether it's a, uh, Sichuan, China, or uh, Maasai, Africa, or uh, you know, Alaskan Native, or French hot cuisine—they all do these same four things. So they must be pretty darn important if they're everywhere. And and they weren't just like add-ons of these diets; they were the pretty much the sole composition of these kinds of traditional ways of preparing meals. So as far as those four, we we look at the four we have. Meat on bone, organ meats, fermented spr- fermented and sprouted foods, and we have fresh uncooked ingredients. So maybe take us through one by one. Let's start with meat on the bone. So meat on the bone refers to like if you have chicken or turkey, you're going to make your Thanksgiving Christmas dinner. You use the skin, you use the fat under the skin, and you use the bones. And all of those things um, help when you're basically cooking it um, more whole. You tend to be you tend to be cooking it. Um, more gently as well. Like it may be like a slower cooking process, um, but that keeps the moisture in. And so the meat itself tends to be more tender, but the real key thing is that when you cook the bones and the connective tissue, like the skin, the ligaments, that white wiggly stuff at the end of a chicken bone, um, you are actually breaking down the cartilage in there and the collagen in ways that your body can use uniquely. It's not a protein. It's not a fat. It's a unique food group. Um, and they're, they're in this category of proteoglycans um, that are combina- molecular combinations of sugars and proteins that act they do something very special in our body that nothing else really can do. Um, and that is to help the cells of our body that produce collagen and cartilage. So the cells of our body that produce the skin, that produce the ligaments, that produce the, the joint material, that keep our joints lubricated well and keep us feeling young. Um, these food compounds that you get basically from like chicken stock that you might make from, you know, saving the bones after you have that meat on the bone, you use the bones again, boiling them um, to make a a turkey stock or turkey soup or whatever. Um, That stuff actually acts like a growth factor for the, these cells called fibroblasts that make collagen. So they help our skin stay young looking. They help us grow faster um, nails, grow nails and hair faster. And they're really great for our joints and even the, the gut 
because the gut is made out of a lot of um, connective tissue as well. Mm-hmm. So it's just healing for so many um, aspects of our body that, you know, if you never had this stuff and you start eating it, generally people notice that their their hands start feeling better like if you spend all day typing at a computer um or you might notice your hair grows faster your people have actually written me to tell me that uh friends have asked if they did botox and they said no i did bone broth (laughs) so now if somebody's listening they're they're in their car they're listening to this they're going to go to the grocery store what are some things that they should be picking up and you're saying they should be cooking it maybe slower so should they be using a slow cooker for example um simplify that for us Yeah, so you can definitely cook things in a slow cooker as long as they have some kind of connective tissue, like if they have some kind of bone in there or a joint or even just the skin really helps. Um, You can roast chicken, so you buy a whole chicken instead of just getting uh, boneless, skinless. Or, or just get chicken wings or legs. But as long as they have the bone in and the skin on, and then you just you know bake the chicken and you eat the skin, so you get that benefit. But then you save the bones and you can make your own chicken stock. And that's a, that's a bit of like a learning curve there. But we have um, we have instructions on our website how to do that in video form. Uh, but also you can just go to um, there's like online stores and Costco now where you can buy boxed chicken stock and beef stock that's made with the bones. It's not a, as gelatinous necessarily as what you might make at home, but um, but it's still really good for you and it, it and it forms the foundation of, of potentially really healthy quick meals because you can just heat up that stock and then throw stuff into it and call it a soup, right? Like I throw in, you know, eggs and vegetables that I've pre-cooked the vegetables, throw in the eggs and make it like an egg drop soup, throw in some kind of cheese or something if you like cheese. Um, And then, you know, you've just made yourself a really quick, um, super healthy lunch or even dinner. Oh yeah, no kidding. Easy, easy. Great tip. So now take us through organ meats. So why are organ meats a part of this world diet, the human diet? Organ meats are like the... um, the original superfood. <laughs> these are like uh, little storehouses of different nutrients, and we just throw them away these days or feed them to the dogs and cats. Mm-hmm. But so w- when um, you can kind of think about it, like if you've heard uh, dietitians say you want to eat your rainbow vegetables because the different colors have different uh, vitamins. That's why they have the different colors. Well, the different organs of an animal's body also have different nutritional profiles. So, for example, liver has uh, tons of B vitamins in it um, and lots of iron um, compared to muscle meat, which has tons of protein in it, some iron, but um, you know, not anywhere near as much of the B vitamins. And the same goes for all the other organs, including you know things that people used to eat but we don't even really think of anymore, like tongue, right? And kidneys um and bone marrow those are some of the more common ones you can get like thymus gland and some high-end um grocery stores um and uh but like every part if you go overseas if you especially to asia you'll see any anything and everything being sold on the street like they've got like lungs on a stick you know it's funny in the western world we don't look at that as something that's favorable and i think I don't know, maybe is it because just we think we're more civilized now or, you know, like we don't eat organs. Like when you, you're cooking your turkey dinner, we take all that stuff out, you know, we shove it full of stuffing and bread and what have you, and we just 
throw the organs away. Yeah, because we don't know what to do with them, right? I mean, that's kind of a limiting factor in, in health these days is that we no longer know how to feed ourselves. Um, you know, we, do, we don't learn it and we don't respect it as a skill. It's not um, something that we even consider a science. That's why our, our book is like we're, we're trying to get the word out that really the original nutritionists aren't people who studied statistics. They're people who worked with food and fed it to people and made observations over years of experience about how it affected their bodies. And, you know, they just listened to, you know, what people said, whether they liked it cooked this way more or that way more. And when you're working with natural, all natural ingredients and using natural cooking techniques, flavor is nutrition. Everything that chefs do to intensify flavor also intensifies the nutrition and ups the nutritional value of the dish. So on the same vein as organ meats, in the book you recommended eating liver once a week. Why liver? So liver is one of the most familiar organ meats that we, we, we can still readily access. And what it's going to do for you is it really helps support your bone marrow. Actually, it helps your body um, produce white blood cells, which are the, um, the patrol <laughs> uh, crew of your immune system. And it helps you produce uh, red blood cells, which carry oxygen and help you know, make sure you have enough oxygen and energy in your body and um, platelets. So many, many times I see patients who have slight abnormalities. They're mildly anemic. They, they've just been told, oh, well, I'm just anemic. You know, I'm just that way. I have to take iron pills. I'll, and they'll have other abnormalities. Um, like they might have low white blood cells or whatever. And I'll tell them, you know, why don't you start eating liver if you don't like it? Um, have de dehydrated liver pills, you can get that as well. And once a week seems to be, you know, enough to make a dent. If you can do it twice a week, that's great too. If you haven't in a while, you know, doing a bunch up at front, up front um, helps. Um, but, you know, you don't need to do it every day. But this, it just really, it changes their lab values. They come back and everything's normal. And, um, you know, they may or may not actually feel any better, but I can see that their body has responded. And, um, you know, I, I have the faith that getting those numbers in the normal range means their body's going to be operating uh, at fuller capacity. It helps your immune system. It helps so your blood doesn't clots when it should and doesn't clot when it doesn't, when it shouldn't. So, um that's a, a, a great tool. And I'd say about once a day, I, I recommend that for my patients. No kidding. Now, this must drive you crazy. And I don't want to diverge too far from this, but I have to just ask. But like, it's got to drive you crazy when you hear people say, you know, I'm tired all the time and I just need to take iron pills or, you know, I need to take this medication or they go to their doctor and the doctor prescribes them, you know, X, Y, and Z medication for something that you know that if they made a change in their diet would have a tremendous impact to them. But we see this all the time where as soon as somebody has some sort of ailment or they're not well, they go to their doctor and they get a prescription for some type of medication and then they have a medication for that medication. It just, it gets crazy. And, you know, I look at this and I, I read the book and I, you know, as cliche as it sounds, the right foods can heal your body. It can set you on the right course. But why is it that in society today, we are so against that where now if you say, well, are you eating the right foods? People almost look at you like you're crazy or not to be offensive to anybody, but because this is what, what I hear, but they're like, come on, man, that stuff doesn't actually work. Like the real stuff that works is medication. That's the only stuff that works. Why is it that we've screwed up so much and gone down this road? Like in your opinion, why do you think that is? Well, I think partly because the advice that doctors have been giving around diet and nutrition, which was incorrect, 
doesn't help anything, right? So when we tell, like, you know, people in my own office, I hear them on the phone, their patients, your cholesterol came back high, you should, you know, follow a low fat, low cholesterol diet. Well, that never works. It doesn't help, you know, really lower their cholesterol for many people. And it certainly doesn't help to prevent heart attacks. Uh, so when we give advice that doesn't work, it creates the wrong impression that the field of, you know, that the field we're talking about it, it is useless, but it's because we give the wrong advice. So if we started, if every doctor gave the right advice, this we wouldn't even need to talk about this because everybody would know the way folks did, you know, 150, 200 years ago. It's so sad. It really is sad because people are doing the best they possibly can with the information that they're given. And the information they're being given is wrong. Like the food guide, you know, the American or Canadian food guide, or, uh, you know, they're hearing information from their doctors and they're using that information to help, you know, decide what course they should be taking. And it sucks because you're giving them the wrong information, which, you know, it, it makes it so important for, you know, books like yours, people like you, you know, podcasts like this to bring information, alternative views to people that, um, you know, may not have heard this before. So um, to me, you know, I, I, I look at this as being so important because the more I read, the more I learn, the more I talk to people who just know better, um, the more I learn just how really messed up our society is and how our decision making is really poor, you know, with what we eat, with how we treat ourselves, um, and we need to we need to to make a change um, for the better. But in any case, I don't want to go too much into that 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 area. I want to keep going on the human diet. So we talked about meat on the bone, organ meats, and now fermented and sprouted foods. Talk to us a little bit more about that because I know that fermented foods, for example, um, I was reading a book about gut health and the importance of fermented foods for gut health and how critical gut health is to our overall wellness. So maybe talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so before there was canning or refrigeration and freezing for preservation of food, when we had lots of extra crops or extra anything, there was a, a need to store it for later. And uh, people worked out these complicated uh, methods. Well, actually, they were really kind of simple, but there's like you just add salt and keep something in a clay pot and uh, or bury it underground or something weird like that. Um, and bam, it's going to like ferment into something that is preserving the nutritional value of the food for later. So for that's fermentation, right? So we're very familiar with cheese. That's an example. <laughs> now, cheese doesn't have any living bacteria anymore, but yogurt does. So there's the live culture fermented foods still have the probiotics in them. Um, sourdough bread is an example of a, a fermented food that doesn't have live bacteria in it anymore, but the the flour has actually been fermented into a, something called oligosaccharides that um, actually work as prebiotics. So there's the, the, this pillar of fermented and sprouted food gives you prebiotics and probiotics that help your gut health and your immune system. And so the prebiotics are foods that feed the good bacteria in your gut. So you don't have to take probiotics if you just put down the right fertilizer for healthy or guts uh, flora to grow, then when you inevitably will eat some or whatever little bits of you may have still living in your gut, they'll be able to multiply so that 
their numbers are, you know, enough to do the job, which they it's basically gang warfare in your gut, right? We have to have good bacteria because we will inevitably be exposed to bad bacteria and whoever has the bigger army is going to win. And it's scary too, because again, this brings up again, not to, not to lambaste doctors out there, but we're selling antibiotics or prescribing antibiotics. Like it's like Pez candy, man. Like I, so many people are getting antibiotics and you're seeing the rise of, you know, these, these super bugs where it's just tough to beat them. But what people don't realize that when you're throwing and you know, you can confirm this as well too, but when you're throwing an antibiotic in your stomach, it's like setting off a nuclear bomb in your stomach and it just kills everything. And when I saw some people go on different courses of antibiotics, when they got off it, they had stomach problems and all of a sudden they started having skin problems and like, I don't understand why this is. And the more research, the more you read into it, you read how important uh, gut health truly is and how important um, these fermented foods play in your gut health. Um, maybe talk to us a little bit about that and, 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 and how these fermented foods or what kind of fermented foods people can perhaps start um, eating to help them if, you know, they did go on a string of antibiotics or they are looking to improve gut health. Yeah, when I started practicing, you know, over 20 years ago now, there was really no concern of using uh, antibiotics for like colds, right? I mean, they would, patients would come in and say, I, I have a cold, I want some antibiotic. And like a few doctors would say, well, it doesn't make sense because, you know, colds are caused by viruses and antibiotics kill bacteria, not viruses. But now it has really been a sea change. And I see a lot more doctors kind of being really strict and educating their patients. If they have a cold, chances are like almost minimal. that <laughs> <laughs> can do anything other than hurt them. And even more so, there's a few um, doctors now, I mean, I've, I've had patients who were put on antibiotics when they actually really did need them and tell me that their doctor told them, well, you should take a probiotic capsule or something. And what I actually recommend is not just taking a probiotic capsule, but even having some live culture fermented foods like yogurt or uh, naturally fermented um, pickles or sauerkraut or kimchi. So there's pickles in the grocery store that have vinegar. Those are not naturally fermented. Then there's pickles that cost like four times as much that are made just with cucumber salt and water. And those are naturally fermented and you do get good bacteria when you um, dish out the extra cash there. <laughs> so what's happening in our bodies there when we're eating these, these fermented vegetables or this fermented food? Um, what's happening in our gut that's actually helping to create this better ecosystem in our body? So two really important things. One is that we're just eating literally good bacteria that are still living in the food. Um, and, uh, you know, not all of them survive the acid bath in the stomach, but a lot of them do. Some, some can go dormant for that. And then they wake back up again and starting in the small intestine, and then the colon. Um, and uh, then so they're actually just going to keep on keeping on. Right. They do what they do, which is divide rapidly <laughs> every <laughs> 20 minutes in some cases. And that's really all they have to do because then they are part of the, um, the army of good bacteria that will be there in times of need when we get attacked by some bad bacteria because the bacteria have ways of detecting who is a good bacteria. It's called quorum sensing and how many of them there are and who the bad guys are. They're constantly exuding um, different chemicals to see what's going on out there and to figure out if there's an invader and if they need to, bacteria actually fight off bacteria in our gut all the time. 
And this is actually what is one of the most common causes of traveler's diarrhea is we just go somewhere and we drink the water and it's not that we got sick, it's just that there's different bacteria there that we're not familiar with each other and so they're fighting it out. So let's dig into the last one here. The last element here, the last one, number four on the human diet is fresh, uncooked ingredients, but very specific ones. So tell us a little bit about that. So really anything um, can be eat, that can be eaten fresh is going to be really good for you when you eat it fresh. So this goes, of course, for vegetables. And I say vegetables before I say fruits because fruits are a lot of sugar. And that kind of gets us into, you know, what, what, should, what should we avoid, which is too much sugar. But, you know, vegetables are fantastically healthy when they're totally fresh because heat actually destroys a lot of the heat-soluble nutrients. Heat tends to destroy... Um, nutrition. It doesn't generally create nutrition at all. It may make some of it more accessible, like because there's, um, you know, there's so much cellulose in, in some some plant foods that it does help to kind of uh, steam them a tiny bit to release to break down the the barrier to our bodies being able to access the vitamins. But but heat too much heat destroys um, vitamins and it also destroys antioxidants very rapidly. So one of the big reasons that um, herbs and uh, uh, spices are used as supplements is because they have so much antioxidant in them. And you can, of course, just use that in your food as long as you don't overcook it um, or if, if, if you can eat it raw. Um, and But of course, it's not just the plant world that can be consumed raw. People didn't used to have the health department, um, you know, riding their backs about, you know, you've got to cook your chicken to 160 degrees. People would eat a lot of food raw like every culture has a form of raw um you know beef right so there's steak tartare there's ceviche uh, ceviche seafood but uh, <laughs> there's there's like a ceviche with um also with with beef that's a, that you can buy in mexico so and they actually kind of keep the bacteria on, in check with things like vinegar um and lots of salt but um, so you, eggnog, ice cream used to be made with raw eggs, um, gelato, I think, um, also. And, uh, you know, it's just milk, dairy products did not used to be pasteurized because how could they have been? People didn't have pasteurization machines. And, you know, in a lot of places around the world, they didn't have enough fuel to cook their food, like particularly um, uh, like northern climates, you know, where they are very far north and they don't have a lot of trees. They just didn't cook. The Alaskan natives did not have cooking equipment. They ate their seal raw, right? Wow. Fish raw. Maybe they would ferment it, but um, it was not cooked. And so, Traditionally, we had so much good bacteria living in our gut that when there was a little bit of bad bacteria we might get from food that we were eating without cooking, it was not a problem. I don't, I didn't really think about that a lot, but I cook a lot of my vegetables, like almost every single one of them. And to me, maybe you're saying more raw. So what are you saying to people out there who cook their vegetables like myself? Are you saying maybe don't cook them, eat them more raw, or is there a different way to prepare them? What, what, are, you, what are you saying there? Well, the way we recommend uh, is is steaming because steaming and then drizzling with like garlic butter, a little salt or something like that is really delicious for one thing. Very simple. But steaming doesn't cook it above, you know, the temperature of the steam, which is controlled there. It's never going to get super high and it's moist heat. So moisture also reduces the rate of oxidation. Um, dry heat um, is, is going to damage things faster. So there's a lot of... Um, 
you know, uh, people who do roasting veggies, which is totally, totally delicious. And I'm all for that, but it shouldn't be like something that you do as like your only way of cooking vegetables because you're missing out. Um, and salads of course are the classic fresh vegetable, any kind of salad and coleslaw. If you have like a healthy mayo, not the usual store-bought mayo, um, you know, where you're just slicing and combining fresh veggies and, um, with a, with a nice rich kind of a dressing is a great way to have more raw food, more raw veggies in your diet. So Dr. Kate, as we're finishing up here, I want to talk about three things that I think maybe our audience has a lot of that maybe we should start cutting out. And uh, maybe if you can just comment on them a little bit and tell us why we need to take them out of our diet, that would be awesome. So the first one, vegetable oil. Now, you're saying that vegetable oil is the enemy of the brain. Why is that? Yeah, so what are vegetable oils? Anyway, I just want to define that real quick. So vegetable oil is an industry term for oils that have been refined, bleached, and deodorized, basically. And um, they come from corn, canola, cottonseed, soy, sunflower, safflower, certain parts of the palm. And, uh, and then in restaurants, you're going to find uh, rice, bran oil, and grapeseed oil. And they are the only things actually that we, ca- we say everyone should categorically avoid. Um, everyone, nobody gets any benefit from these things. Um, and they are toxic. And that is because when they are processed, refined, bleached, and deodorized is, is how they're processed. They, the, they are damaged at a molecular level. And this creates new molecules that are toxic to our bodies that are particularly going to disrupt the way our mitochondria work, which are the energy, um, you know, little energy powerhouses of our body. So we, in other words, when you're talking about energy, you're talking about, you know, if you're tired, that some part of your body is some, something is happening there with the energy systems of your body. So there's a lot of people drinking energy drinks, you know, just keep their energy up at work in the afternoon so they can go to a workout. That is not something that you're really helping when you're taking an energy drink. You you have a metabolic problem there, and it's got to be related to mitochondrial dysfunction that is often brought on by the fact that you've been eating these vegetable oils, and now they are stored in your body, and your mitochondria have been damaged. And so you have to get these vegetable oils out of your diet to have like a normal amount of energy on a daily basis to be able to burn fat normally. So that's just one example, but there, you know, your brain needs a lot of energy too. It's, it's, uh, something like uh, 2% of your body weight, but uses 20% of the energy at any given time. So, and the brain is where you feel tired most of the time, you know, unless you've done a big workout. Um, but that's what perceives the energy loss. So when you are, feeling like you need a nap or you need some more caffeine or something that is your brain unless you're sleep deprived which can happen um too much these days but you know that is your brain telling you that um it's not getting energy and very often the cause is is that you've been consuming vegetable oils and that's playing a big role in um the the just these energy dips that most ex- people now experience every single day and it can cause worse problems too because it causes um oxidation in the brain and oxidation is a process of burning basically and it's the, the it's what's happening when um there's been a lot of talk now about uh, tr- chronic traumatic um concussive injury about, yeah. around athletes and um post-concussive damage around uh, the military in this country or people who had concussions who are athletes. Um, and that is driven by oxidation in the brain and inflammation. And, and when you eat these vegetable oils, your brain is like a tinder house 
ready to burn, ready to oxidize and, you know, damage large areas of neurons, which is, you know, what, where your thinking comes from. So vegetable oil, cut it out. We don't want that. So that's number one. The second one that we can talk about here, and I've been going on a war about this one, cutting out sugar. So you're talking about added sugar, and you mentioned even honey in there. But while you're talking about sugar, maybe get in there a little bit about fruit. So, yeah, so so now vegetable oils, everybody should categorically, categorically avoid and should cut out. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. it comes to these these foods that are the carby foods and they are essentially sources of sugar molecules that we just need to cut down. We may need to cut down dramatically like 90%, (laughs) but but it's the dose that makes the poison. You know, we are going to be getting, the fact is that, you know, milk has some sugar and, uh, snack peas have some sugar and, you know, healthy foods have some sugar in them. So we're, we're going to be getting sugar. You can't cut it out. But the reason I, I think this is important to mention is that the body cannot tell the difference between a glucose molecule that came from a Twinkie and a glucose molecule that came from a cashew nut. They are molecularly identical. So when people talk about natural sugar, like honey, um, they often say, well, you know, honey's fine. And so just cook uh, a gazillion things that are made out of honey and have all the cookies you want as long as you make honey. No, 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 no. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a huge insight because I think a lot of people are looking at the two as being completely different. Honey, it's it's natural. It's better. It's healthy for us. But you're not saying that at all. So then in that in that case, it's just a matter of, um, limiting your carb intake, um, you know, your simple sugars. Yes, you can't cut out all sugar, but do your best to cut out things like soda, um, juices, except for, you know, fresh squeezed juices. Um, you know, avoid things like snacks and desserts that are high in sugar um, and stick to more of the healthy alternatives like the fruits, for example. Is that correct? Absolutely. And and even like condiments, you know, like ketchup, there's ketchups out there that have uh, like nine grams of sugar for per serving, and then there's ketchups that have three and uh, three grams of sugar. So it's you know three times better basically. And so looking at the kind of condiments you get, looking at you know tomato sauces, salad dressings, even sushi, they add sugar to these things because the American palate is so screwed up that we just um, you know tend to not be able to detect subtle flavors anymore. It has to be blasted with you know sweetness and then you know other artificial flavorings like msg Mm -hmm. so the last one that i want to talk to you about really quickly that a lot of people were surprised about when they read the book powdered proteins why is that we're going to we're going to the gym we come home we work out you know we want to fuel our muscles so we take in you know 40 50 grams of powdered protein why do we have to cut that out so our bodies are designed to get protein gradually. <laughs> we normally have to digest it first. And um, when we womp our bloodstream with just this massive infusion of free, already digested amino acids, that it has the same effect as sugar, actually, because amino acids are sticky like sugar is, and they, they are toxic in, in high levels. And they will literally stick. The, the reason sugar is toxic in high levels is because it's sticky. It there's we have in, in the chapter of deep nutrition um, called sickly sweet. We explain this 
biochemical process of why does sugar stick to stuff? Well, amino acids stick to stuff too. And when you get just too many too quickly in your bloodstream, they're going to have a similar detrimental effect. And so when athletes are, are taking protein powders, they're doing it to build muscle. But actually, ironically, one of the things that the protein powders damage is their connective tissue, which is what the muscle is held to the bone with. So you're doing all this stuff to build your muscle and you're doing nothing to build your connective tissue. But, um, but you know, that's where bone stock comes in. Um, and you're actually, if you're having a lot of these protein powders, you're in a lot of cases damaging your connective tissue potentially. Incredible. Incredible. That is Dr. Kate deep nutrition while your genes need traditional food. Dr. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can anyone get in touch with you or read more information about some of the things that we were talking about today? Check out my website, which is drkate.com, and it's D-R-C-A-T-E.com. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Ryan. It was just a blast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kate. We'll talk soon. All right. There we have it. That's Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food by Dr. Kate Shanahan. I hope you enjoyed this interview. It's a little longer, but there's such really good takeaways from it, really good information, things that you can put into practice right away. If you're going shopping, you're buying. If you're going grocery shopping, you're buying groceries. This might change the kind of stuff that you buy. Might change the kind of stuff that you eat. And like I said at the very top, if you're looking to change your results, whether it's financial, whether it's in business, it doesn't matter. You have to focus on your health because if you don't have your health, you don't have a whole hell of a lot. And when you start to improve your health, it's truly amazing what happens. So I really wanted to dedicate some time to uh, this book, and I'm glad I did. And I hope that you enjoyed the episode and that you're able to take away a lot of good information that could potentially change your life. In any case, again, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show. It doesn't matter if you're on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. It doesn't matter what platform you're using. Rate and review the show. Send me an email at ryan.caligeriatme.com. My email is always in the show notes. Just go there and take a look. Send me a screen capture of your rating and review. And I'll get you entered into a draw every single quarter for a prize. And again, this quarter's prize, a MacBook Air. All right, my friends, that is a wrap. So again, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode. And I can't wait to get back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with the author. And again, every single week, baby, I'm just here to save you a little bit of time. All right, guys, have yourselves a great week, a productive week. I'll talk to you soon. Love you guys. I wondered who I'd be without my fame. Who would I be if I said things that people didn't want to hear? Or if I defied their expectations of me? What if I showed up to the party without my Mardi Gras mask and refused to flash my breasts for a handful of beads? I'll give you a moment to wipe that image out of your mind. When I was about 28, after a decade as a professional comedian, I realized one night in LA that the purpose of my life had always been to free people from concern, just like my dad. And when I realized this, I dubbed my new devotion, the Church of Freedom from Concern. The Church of FFC. And I dedicated myself to that ministry. What's yours? How will you serve the world? What do they need 
that your talent can provide, that's all you have to figure out. As someone who's done what you're about to go and do, I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Because everything you gain in life will rot and fall apart, and all that will be left of you is what was in your heart. My choosing to free people, <clears throat> my choosing to free people from concern got me to the top of a mountain. Look where I am. Look what I get to do. Everywhere I go, this, I'm going to get emotional because when I tap into this, it really is extraordinary to me. I did something that made people present their best selves to me wherever I go. I am at the top of the mountain, and I was, and I, the, only, the only one I hadn't freed was myself. And that's when my search for identity deepened. You can join the game, fight the wars, play with form all you want. But to find real peace, you have to let the armor go. Your need for acceptance can make you invisible in this world. Don't let anything stand in the way of the light that shines through this form. Now, fear is going to be a player in your life. But you get to decide how much. You can spend your whole life imagining ghosts, worrying about the pathway to the future, but all there will ever be is what's happening here. And the decisions we make in this moment, which are based in either love or fear. So many of us choose our path out of fear disguised as practicality. What we really want seems impossibly out of reach and ridiculous to expect, so we never dare to ask the universe for it. I'm saying I'm the proof that you can ask the universe for it. Please. I learned many great lessons from my father, not the least of which was that you can fail at what you don't want. So you might as well take a chance on doing what you love.